1: Hello, and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today is episode 89, and we're going to be interviewing Rex S. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So uh, like I always said, let's get the party started and dive in. Tell us about growing up. How was your childhood? Um, My childhood was shit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh tell us how my, you really feel. <laughs>
0: my uh earliest childhood memory is um Christmas 1979. I was five years old, it was Christmas Eve actually. Um and <clears throat> we had this tradition in our family. My mom helped my mom kept it going after the divorce and everything. But uh in my neighborhood, different families made different meals and then like all the families, like all the kids' families went around to the different houses and sampled everything and, it was just, like, real social. There was probably, like, six or seven houses that participated. <clears throat> and uh, my mom didn't drink at all. Like, she's the kind of person who would have, like, a couple sips of wine and tell, oh, I'm getting sleepy. I better put it down. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I remember drinking brandy. <laughs> she was drinking brandy that night. <clears throat> and so I'm just going to relate to the story as it was the blanks were filled in for me. So my mom's drinking because my dad's supposed to be home. And she knows that he's at his mistress's house and the phone rings. My mom answers it. And it's his other woman saying, Hey, Ed forgot his wallet here. Oh God. Yeah. So my mom tells my sister Rita to go get her gun. She's like, go get your dad's gun. Oh my God. Rita goes upstairs, gets a gun, brings it downstairs. My dad walks in the front. I'm sitting on the couch watching like, I don't know, Frosty or whatever. Right. (laughs) And, uh, my dad opens the front door and my mom just puts six in his chest. Boom, 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 boom. And, uh, or point blank, he goes back and out the door. Then like two seconds later, he comes flying in the door and he smacks the gun out of her hand and like pins her to the wall. And Somebody called the cops, the cops end up coming. And so it turns out when my mom sent my sister upstairs to get the gun, my dad was head groundsman of Glassboro state college in South Jersey, where I'm from.
1: And, uh, he did track and field events. It was his starter pistol. Oh, thank God. <laughs> so she
0: did it to appease my mom, knowing that my mom couldn't hurt him. You know what I'm saying? So you got to remember, this is 1970, small town New Jersey, South Jersey. The cops come, and they're like, are you good? Are you good? Everybody's good. We're out of here. And, uh, I remember sitting on the stairs thinking to myself, like, man, is Christmas ruined? You know what I mean? And, uh, my dad comes around the corner to go upstairs. I'm like, dad, is Santa still coming? He's like, I shot that fat bastard. He's like, he's bleeding out in the yard. <laughs> oh god. So fast forward a few weeks because my birthday is in the middle of January. I spend my sixth birthday sitting in a courtroom with my dad. Oh
1: no.
0: We're there all day. We go to lunch, come back, spend the afternoon. Finally, at the end of the day, the judge calls my dad up and he's like, well, Mr. Walter, he was like, it looks like He's not going to show, so I award you. I approve the adoption. You're granted custody. Blah blah blah. blah, Till what were you in court
1: for exactly? So this is so on the drive home. That's what I asked my dad. (laughs) I'm like, Dad, was and uh, he's like, Well, he was like,
0: I'm not your real father. He was like, I'm actually your real mother's father. So I'm actually your grandfather on your mother's side. Your parents didn't want you when you were four years old. So your mom and I went and got you and we adopted you. And it was made legal today because your dad was supposed to, your real father who's been in prison for the last six years for armed robbery and possession of cocaine, uh, doesn't want you. So now I'm stuck with you. Okay. Boom. That's my sixth birthday. About a week later, my dad's like, He's like, Hey, if you had to choose who you were going to live with me or your mom, who would you choose? And I'm like thinking to myself, like, this ain't a real question. Right. You know what I mean? Like, this is a silly question. This is like one of those kind of questions that kids, you know, like, how much would you eat? How much would you get paid to eat a bug? Things like that. That's, you know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm yeah. thinking. Uh, so I weigh the options. You know, my mom makes me clean. She makes me take baths. She makes me do chores, you know, and my dad takes me fishing. He plays Chinese checkers with me. You know what I mean? So I'm like, you about two weeks later we moved in with the woman who would who was his mistress who would become my future stepmom and who would be my abuser for the next six years um, about two weeks after we moved in with her this is about <clears throat> second or third week of February 1980 um, I don't know what I did I'll never really know what I did but uh, she started beating me with this uh, like unbreakable plastic soup ladle and I remember coming to, like, coming to awareness um, with my head like that and just crunched down in the corner of the couch, you know, trying to protect the back of my head. And My younger stepbrother, future stepbrother, is screaming at her to stop, and uh, she kind of comes to awareness, realizes what she's done. My head's bleeding everywhere. She takes me, to, she drags me to the bathroom, sticks my head under the uh, faucet in the tub, try to get the bleeding to stop it won't stop so she tells me she's like we're gonna tell your dad you slipped in the kitchen on the wax floor and hit your head on the dishwasher so that's what i told him on the way to the hospital she pulls over in this little dirt parking lot she says she stops the car and she looks me dead in the eye she says if you ever tell anyone the things that go on in our house i'll kill your dad she was like you may get away and i may go to prison but you'll have to live the rest of your life knowing that i killed your dad because you couldn't keep your mouth shut. So I kept my mouth shut. We got to the hospital. Several nurses kept asking me. They're like, what happened? What happened? And I kept telling them I slipped in the kitchen. I was running through the kitchen in my socks. I slipped. Hit my head on the back of my head on the dishwasher. So finally the doctor comes in and uh, he was like, you want to tell me what happened? He, he tells her, he tells her to leave. And she's like, I'm not leaving. He's like, you're not his guardian. You're nothing. He was like, right now, he was like, you're under suspicion. He's like, you need to leave. So she left the room and I'm sitting there and, you know, crying. (laughs) And uh, he asked me, he looks me in the eye and he's like, son, you want to tell me what really happened? And I just like, so I remember like just sitting there thinking like, I can't stand it. I was like, I slipped in the kitchen, hit my head on the dishwasher. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, if that's your story, there's nothing I can do for you. You're on your own stitched up my head and watched me walk out with the woman that he knew did that to me. So I learned at a real young age that I, that nobody had my back. Nobody was coming to save me. Nobody was coming to rescue me. And, uh, the physical abuse turned into sexual abuse. Um, she would take things and stick them up my butt, uh, take rubber bands and, uh, use them to hit me in the nuts. Um, my two older stepbrothers started visiting my room late at night, um, getting me to go down on them. <clears throat> that went on for about three years until I pulled a knife on one of them, told them if I saw it again, I was going to cut it off. Might not be in that moment, but someday I was going to cut that fucker off. They must have believed me because they never came back. <clears throat> uh, the physical abuse stayed until I was about 12 years old. And uh, right after my 12th birthday, I was at my friend, uh Miles' house, and we were kicking it with his old, his older brother was, or his uncle, was hanging out with my older brother, and they were doing coke, <laughs> and uh, we talked him into fucking getting us high, and they shot us up, and that was the first time I ever got really high, first time I ever smoked, I, I smoked weed and drank beer, and whatever I could get my hands on from the time I was six years old. How old were you guys at that time?
1: Twelve. Oh. Twelve years what would you get your hands on? Cocaine. At 12, no shit. Yeah. And uh
0: about February or March of 1986, something happened. I remember it wasn't too cold out, so It was probably it might it might even have been like April. <clears throat> but uh I was messing around with my stepbrother, and like I think we were sword fighting with wiffle ball bats, and I think I hit him too hard. I probably hit him too hard, <laughs> and uh, he went crying to my downstairs, in the basement downstairs, in the basement was my dad's workshop. Um, him and my stepmom made uh, like you ever seen those like wooden um, duck or geese weather vanes that the wings spin and like it turns in the wind, or like uh, they have like reindeer plant holders with poinsettias in them and stuff like that. So they did stuff like that, they made like little wooden uh, trucks and stuff, and they sold it at Arts. Arch- craft fairs around the holidays okay. so their workshop was downstairs a lot of scrap wood laying around stuff like that so she comes flying up the stairs she's got about a, a baseball bat length uh, a piece of two by two and she's got it cocked back like she's about to swing for the fences and i remember time slowed down and i remember thinking to myself like hearing this voice in my head thinking if you don't put a stop to this she's going to kill you it might not be today it might not be tomorrow but at some point she's going to kill you And uh, I made the decision to stand up for myself and time just like put my arm up. She hit me in the arm, broke my arm uh, and I hit her. And then I blacked out. And uh, next thing I remember is my dad pulling me off of her and then he hit me and knocked me out. I remember him hitting me. I remember seeing the fist coming. I'll never forget that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And I woke up in juvie. no charges were pressed. I sat there for, I don't think I spent two nights uh, but I demolished the side of her face. She had that reconstructive surgery. Uh, I never really found out why. No charges were pressed or anything. Uh, but I think it had something to do with it. my dad used to work for the police in my hometown. He did private investigation work and stuff. So uh, I think he might have pulled some strings to keep me from getting in trouble. But got back got back to the house and there was an army duffel bag packed with a bunch of my clothes and a bunch of my cassette tapes a walkman and they said my dad said get the fuck out of my house don't ever come back and we argued a little bit I told him I said are you sure this is what you want they said you heard me get out of my house don't ever fucking come back so I left and uh, to my knowledge except for maybe during the depression I was the first homeless person in my hometown class in Glassboro in Jersey <laughs> uh, but nobody like people knew well nobody knew nobody knew then um, at that point I was staying with a friend of mine um, whose mom was super cool. My one of the things my stepmom used to do to abuse me was uh she would send me to elementary school with like my older stepbrothers, old clothes, and they're like 10 years older than me. So like these are clothes from like the mid 70s, and she's sending me to school in them in the mid 80s. Like you know <laughs> what I mean? And uh so I used to go over to my friend Miles' house every morning and borrow some of his clothes, wear his clothes to school and then come home and change back. Uh, his mom was cool. She knew, she knew what was up, but like, you got to remember this is small town, New Jersey in the 1980s. You know what I mean? People didn't butt in. They just did what they could in other ways. You know what I'm saying? So like yeah. she knew for the longest time that I was living in Miles's closet. She never said anything until finally she did. And she was like, you don't have to sleep in the closet. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, but, uh, About a month after I got kicked out, me and Miles were in Camden, New Jersey at about two o'clock in the morning. We were looking for some Coke. I had to come up on 20 bucks. Back then you could get five nickel bags for 20 bucks. And, uh, so we're, we're, we wanted to get high again. And, uh, running this old black guy and he's like man he's like what the fuck are you doing out here you gotta understand man Camden is like Detroit New Jersey
1: oh I know <laughs> I, I was gonna mention I'm from New Jersey I'm in I'm in uh, Middlesex County I'm from Central Jersey oh
0: that's what's up that's what's up right on represent <laughs> so,
1: oh, uh, I know yeah, all about totally.
0: it yeah so 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 the people who don't know Camden's like Detroit <laughs> or like I, Flint it, cool.
1: exactly you don't want to be caught there at the wrong time
0: no especially in the 80s like it's cleaned up a lot now like you oh go yeah down, like they got the riverfront walk and stuff now it's crazy like back then that was like crackheads and hookers <laughs> that's all the riverfront was yeah but uh he uh he's like man he's like come on man come back to my house you can get you off the street so we go back to his house and he's like he's like you he looking for and i said white i didn't know no different you know what i mean mm-hmm. and uh he hands me this little wax spindle with this little bit of powder in the corner and uh I told him, I said, man, I said, I'm young, but I'm not stupid, bro. I was like, I know there's supposed to be more than that. He's like, what you talking about, man? He's like, that shit ain't pinched. He gets all defensive and shit. And I was like, bro, I was like, dude, I'm used to getting bags like this, you know, like, like the size of my thumbnail, you know what I mean? And he's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, man, what you looking for? I was like, Coke. He's like, nah, he's like, that's heroin. Hmm. Heroin. He's like, yeah, he's like heroin. And Miles was like, "Oh no!" And I was like, "Ooh!" <laughs> I was like, well, "I was like, tell me more about this." Huh. And uh, eventually, I asked him. I said, "Man, why are you call it hair on?" He said, "Because once you do it, you hook from hair on out." Huh. And I was like, "I was like, yeah, I I, I can dig that." Uh I, I I I did dope a few more times over the next year.
1: Um, so until we, the, what? So you actually thought about. Knowing that you're going to get addicted to this right away, and you still did it. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't give a fuck. My brother was an addict. Like me, when I started doing it, I didn't realize. You know what I mean? I, ne- I never thought for so long. I didn't think I was an addict. Oh, uh, not me. I, I, I partyed, I, quote unquote. I knew. Uh,
0: I knew what road I was headed down. Plus, like you have to understand, like uh, part of the abuse that I sustained was a lot of psychological. So, like I was told by my stepmom. But see, I got a lot of psychological abuse from my dad, too. My dad claimed to have not known that the abuse was going on, which she never did it around him. And, like, she was good about it. She had this, like, White Pages phone book and this little baseball bat that she would, like, hold on my back and hit the phone so that it wouldn't leave marks, but still hurt like a motherfucker. Uh, yeah, she was good. She knew what she was doing. And, uh, but, uh,
1: I forgot what I was saying. About her hitting her, uh, hitting you that she knew what she was doing? Yeah. Uh, hang on a second. Give me a second. <laughs> that's all right. It happens to me all the time. Yeah. Anyway, uh,
0: I, I, I knew I was... Oh, that's, that's what I was going to say. They used to tell me, you're going to be a junkie convict just like your real father. You're going dropout junkie convict just like your real father, you know? And, like, so here and now for six years, you know what I mean? You're fat, you're stupid, you're worthless, you're dumb, you know? The, the, the stupid, I never bought into that one. I knew better than that. Like I taught myself how to read at uh, like three years old with one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. My older sister helped me learn how to read. Mm-hmm. Like I did a book report on Animal Farm in the fourth grade by George Orwell. You know, what I mean? <laughs> like I mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't stupid. So that's like the one thing I focused on. But uh, my older brother was an addict. My real father was an addict. Uh, as far as I knew, my real mom was an alcoholic. Um, I kind of knew that, but here's the thing, though. I hated myself. I absolutely hated myself. I was raised Catholic-ish. Uh, You know, I got confirmed and all that. Then as soon as I, was, my mom told me, she said, "Go to your, go to your confirmation, and you can make your own decision." I said, "All right," I quit going the next week. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> but that shit don't go away, man. So suicide gone. You know what I mean? Like, no matter how low it got, that's why I would like, you know, that's why when I found heroin, I was like, oh, I, was like, I don't have to kill myself. There is this beautiful place that I can go to and forget everything and all my problems, and even if it's just for a short period of time. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, I used to call it the land of nod, going off to the land of nod. And uh, you know, I I I messed around, like I said, for uh, maybe maybe a dozen times over the next year. <coughs> Summer '87, I started uh, selling crack. I'd go over to Philly and I'd get little two dollar caps.
1: Uh, How old were like, you at that time? Thirteen. And mm-hmm. no uh, shit, I, I knew these uh,
0: Simon City Royals, these white gangster disciples in Philly who sold. You could get six two dollar crack hits with a little cap and a little plastic vial for ten bucks, and it cost. 80 cents to ride the bus from Camden to Philly over to Ben Franklin. So I'd hustle up 15 bucks. And I'd take the bus over, boom, go score six of them, take the bus back to the three pack of soft pretzels for a buck, take the bus back and then go sell those for five bucks a piece in Camden. And I would do this all day, back and forth, back and forth to about five, six trips. And, uh, then I'd go over to Philly over off uh, Lombard and uh, in South Philly. And there was this like total roach motel above this like donut shop that paid by the night, paid by the hour, uh, mm-hmm. paid by the week. It was 15 bucks a night. And I started staying there. I and mean, there was a bunch of transvestite hookers that lived there. And uh, they used to always get me and Miles to do stuff, try to get us to do stuff. You know, like there was all these creepy old men who wanted to do stuff to us and stuff. But we were all like nah nah, I'm a hustler, you know what I mean like i i'm i I'm already right selling drugs I'm, I'm good at that, and uh well, uh it's probably I think it was like July, but uh it was a Friday night, miles went back to his house, and uh I stayed knocked at the door, and this one real aggressive Tranny was like, "Hey, uh, come on, dude, just wants to fucking." paying you to have you walk around naked no I'm like no I told you fucking no they kicked in the door and I don't remember anything else Uh, I don't even really remember that too much that might even be constructed memory just from the event but uh Miles found me the next morning I was bleeding out from my ass and uh I had a broken jaw my eye was swollen shut uh they beat me and left me for dead and who knows how many times they raped me uh but I ended up in the hospital under a fake name I gave a fake name and there was this woman, her name's Linda. She was like my street mom back then. She was my earliest heroin connect. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And Miles called her and fucking, she pretended to be my mom. and came and got me out of the hospital as soon as they would let me leave. And so after that, I kind of backed off the heroin for a while Cause I was afraid of where it was leading. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. and I, I just decided to explore my alcoholism for the most part
1: <laughs> and, uh,
0: did a lot of cocaine.
1: Um, and at this age, you're at this point, I should say you're still very young.
0: Yeah. Um, everything is pretty much the same from about 13 to 16. Um, I played sports. Um, and I was on, I was on track, uh, to get a scholarship my senior year so i uh i kind of got my shit together i um i stopped doing all hard drugs i just drank and smoked pot like back then like pot was really hard to come by really Um, yeah really hard like and like it was always like uh some like virginia or kentucky homegrown shit like it was yeah it was was really really bad but uh i had this one guy who was he was a he, he uh i met him in high school and we did heroin a couple times together, and he was like, "Hey, man!" He was like, "He was like, I'll help you get off the heroin." He's like, "You don't ever have to worry about finding weed again." He's like, "I'll always make sure you got weed." So that that was cool. He helped me get off heroin, <laughs> um, yeah. and I got in a motorcycle accident um,
1: this summer so the summer. You night- actually, you technically, you you use weed medicinally to get yourself off heroin. Yeah, I've done that. I, I don't think people appreciate how you know the power of using that stuff you know i i i'm for plant-based recovery and stuff like that not specifically for recovery but all things you know they could really well, I'll, help. I'll just put that out there right now i've been clean for eight and a half years um
0: i was on probation when i got clean and i ended up doing the first four and a half years in jail as soon as i got out of jail i was on painkillers because i had degenerative disc disease in my back um and i have arthritis i was on psych meds because i suffered from depression and stuff I was on all these pills <clears throat> and I told my parole officer, I said, Hey, I'm getting off the pills and I'm going to smoke weed. I was like, you need to figure it out. And mm. for the last four years I've used marijuana medicinally. And uh, I also plant-based, I believe that there's a lot of healing power in psychedelics. Um, I, I, I do vision quests and things like that. Um, but yeah. So just put that out there. Nice. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm with you. And I think, you know, and it's funny because like people will judge judge you about that, and like they'll be but they'll they'll be judging you with a cigarette in one hand and
1: an energy drink in the other. Exactly. It's, it's, all it's, it's, yeah, all it's all drugs. It's all drugs. Sure. I, I think you, you know what I noticed? when people mention you know what they're addicted to, and they say drugs. They say, "Oh, I'm addicted to painkillers. I'm addicted to this." No one ever mentions I'm addicted to cigarettes because that kills you. It kills you also. It's just a longer slower process that's it there's no
0: chemicals that we willingly put into our body for recreation like for enjoyment that we don't have a off switch in our brain for cocaine and sugar sugar is the number one addiction on the planet yeah more than alcohol more than nicotine more than heroin i mean sugar is it because they put sugar in everything
1: yeah yeah
0: that's why i got it's
1: funny you mentioned i got this uh Gatorade with zero sugar in it. Yeah. Uh, I know. I'm, I'm an energy drink drinker. I, I get the
0: sugar-free ones. But uh, anyway, uh, summer after my senior year, a couple weeks before the start of the academic school year at Rutgers, uh, I was in a motorcycle accident. Um, I broke 27 bones. I uh, was in a coma for 73 days. I flatlined three times on route to the ER. Um, I was in an accident in Camden and they flight for life me to uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania Trauma Center. And back then, if you were in a flight for life, and you flatlined, they had to land the helicopter.
1: They landed three times going from Camden to Philly. Well, so flight for life, is that program where people uh, volunteer as pilots? Uh, I don't know. Flight for life is the one where like...
0: uh, if they bring in a helicopter, that's flight for life.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, there's, a pro- there's a program where some, some people volunteer to actually fly those helicopters. They, they call it something. I forget.
0: That That, that might be. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Um, but uh, I spent 73 days in a coma. I broke my collarbone. I had a uh, compound fracture on my shin. Cracked my femur. Um, they oh say that where I landed on my head. I, they found me 175 feet from the point of impact. So they theorized, nobody saw it. They theorized because I was on the back of the bike and I was wearing the driver's helmet. They think that I was ejected off the back of the bike, landed on my head and then my left side like hit the ground. And uh, and then I rolled into the bush where some people who were at the party, coming from the party that we were headed to, were coming to see what all the lights and stuff were about. They saw my Doc Martin sticking out of the bush. Huh. Um but uh, I spent another eight and a half weeks or eight and a half weeks total in traction. Um, what's that mean I, in traction? Traction like is when they have like the ropes and stuff
1: holding you up, like the pulleys and stuff. The people for who rehab. are like so learning how to, so you were learning how to move your arms again basically.
0: Well, no, that's to hold you hold you in place. Like they use different pulleys and stuff to hold you in place so your bones heal properly.
1: Like oh, I could. Okay.
0: couldn't move. I was like, I was suspended. I was laying on straps and like I had a cast from my top of my left shoulder down to my left wrist. Um I had reconstructive surgery on my hand. Um my collarbone was broke. I broke my neck in three places and my my lower spine in three places. I had a halo brace on, which is that one that they drill into your head for a neck break. They can't so you can't move. But they can only could only brace it on one side because my left collarbone was broken so they couldn't put the brace on my left shoulder it was bad I uh they thought I was paralyzed from the waist down because I had been in track I had been like same position for so long that uh, my, my something put pressure on something because I had no cessation in my legs but that came back is like once you come out of the cast they start moving you to rehab you and once, once they started, once they started moving, the sensation started coming back and then it came back more. Once I started Go, going
1: back to the coma, did you
0: hear anything while you were in the coma? You know, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, don't, I didn't wake up with any memory and I really,
1: really, really, really wanted to like, uh, when, you woke up, when you woke up, what did you, was it like, oh, I'm waking up from sleep or. ah uh, yeah, I was really dry.
0: Like my lips felt really chapped. My mouth was like super, super dry. Um, And I just remember like waking up and there's a mirror above me. So so when you're in traction and you're suspended, they either put a mirror below you if you're face down or one above you so that you can talk to the people that are next to you. Uh, Like eye contact, because I couldn't move my head. I I I had a broken neck, so I couldn't move my head. So like I woke up and like, I don't know, I just knew something bad had happened but I couldn't remember, actually I think one of the first things I thought was that I overdosed like I remember thinking, did I overdose? And then I saw all the ropes and everything, I was like, okay, and then I started thinking like, fuck, maybe I got hit by a car Um, then my girlfriend was there, she was reading the Bible I, I was awake probably listening to her for like a good 60, 70 seconds before like I grunted or whatever and I don't, I don't really remember a whole lot about it but I, I remember not being freaked out like i wasn't like oh my god what the fuck where am i like i was like okay i'm in the hospital i, I know about hospitals <laughs> I've been in a lot of hospitals yeah. uh yeah um so I, I got out of the hospital turned 18 um jumped on the first settlement check that they offered uh after lawyer fees and everything my uncle ted was my lawyer um after paying him, I got a cashier's check, which I signed and gave it right back to him. I just wanted to hold it for uh, $350,000 and change. And uh, so I went and told my girlfriend, I, girlfriend, and uh, I was like, hey, anything you want to do that we can drive to tomorrow night, let's go do it. And she was like, I want to go see the Grateful Dead in Philly. And I was like, oh, I was like, no. man that because back then i was like super like punk rock headbanger like i was into like dead kennedys and ministry and butthole surfers like industrial i was not into some fucking old hippie country bands who fucking were a bunch of burnout acid hits and uh because I, I had never eaten acid at that point i was afraid of it because <laughs> me and miles scored a vial of acid when we were like 15 and uh it was in a visine bottle and his mom found it and put some in her eyes. Oh, and no. Yeah, we came home and she had really, really long hair. She was like sitting there like one or two strands at a time burning her hair. Oh, she, it's so pretty. It's so pretty. She burned half her hair off. Oh, my God. Yeah. So like I was like, I've never fucking eat that shit ever. Like, no way. But uh, so I so said we got so I kept my word, took her to the show. We bought tickets and we're walking around the lot and I'm just like, dude this is crazy this is insane and then we come across this uh this bus this big old 1942 silver international harvester school bus and uh there's all these punk rock kids sitting on this blanket outside of it like mohawks and shit and i'm like they're like hey what's up brother i was like hey what's up uh i was like man you guys are into this shit they're like hell yeah bro it's the life i was like man i was like that's crazy bro and like so they're like are you going to the show i was like yeah they're like, sit down, sit down. You want to smoke some pot? I was like, Yeah. They handed me a pipe, and it was the first time I'd ever smoked kindbug. Of. And uh good stuff. I, took it, I took it and I looked at it and I felt it immediately. Like I was immediately stoned. I was like, oh my god, I was like, dude, what is this slice with? He's like, weed. <laughs> He's like, it's just good California weed, bro. And I was like, oh my god. So they gave they gave us a bag of mushrooms and sent us in the show. <laughs> and, The first show they played, the first song they played was the only song I knew, Touch of Grey, because it was on MTV. And uh, that was the first song they played. And like the mushrooms had already kicked in. Steve Miller opened up for them. I love Steve Miller, man. And uh, so the mushrooms had already kicked in. So by the time they came on and played Touch of Grey, I was like, what? Brain melted. I was hooked, bro. Uh, After the show. We all met back up, and they're like, hey, man, fucking, you guys should hang out. So we hang out for for the couple days of the show. And then dude's like, man, what are you guys doing? I'm like, nothing. I was like, nothing at all. I was like, the school year's done. I was like, we got no plans. I was like, why? What's up? They're like, man, you should come on tour with us for a couple weeks. And I was like, bet, let's go. And she's like, oh, I don't
1: know. So I was like, following the dead or playing musician or something? No, just following. Just just, following the dead. Yeah, yep,
0: and uh, so, like, she didn't want to go, so I was like, well, I guess that means I don't want to go, and <laughs> so he hands me this business card, and it, on it, it says 1-900-RUN-DEAD, and uh, that used to be a hotline that you could call, and it would tell you where, like, the next few shows were, in what city, on what day. Oh, date. really? Yeah. And, they uh,
1: had their own hotline. They yeah,
0: it, it was the coolest thing ever, and uh, so they were playing Wisconsin, and uh I just jumped on a bus, set up a, a system with my uncle. I said, "Hey, I'm going." He, he was he was stoked about it. My uncle's like the total black sheep of the family. He's like total millionaire lawyer who did nothing but hookers, drugs, booze, and they made apologies for his life. He was just a cigar smoking, scotch drinking,
1: whatever. Stereotypical <laughs> uh, lawyer. They just-
0: yeah, 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 yeah. And he was like, man, he was like, dude, go. Have fun. He was like, stay gone as long as you want. He was like, you want to make me happy? Don't ever come back. So I did. I left. And uh, we set up a system. Or if I if I called him, he would t- I'd tell him what next city I was in. And he'd tell me what Western, what hotel to pick up my money. Because he would wire me money. Okay, and, that's good. Yeah. And I just went on a dead tour Um, for that's amazing, like six months, seven months, and then uh I decided that I wanted to meet my biological father. So I ended up going to Vegas. Uh, I found out that's where he was. And uh first night I met him, he was like, so you like cocaine? I was like, yeah, I used to. He's like, have you ever done meth He's always like, have you ever done crank? And I was like, no nah. I was like, I was like, they don't have that where back back where we're from. And uh he was like, man, you should try it with me. So my first time I met my real father, he smoked an eight ball of meth with me and his best friend. And uh, then he stole all my money and a couple of days later when I finally went to sleep. And I spent the next 10, 11 months in Vegas strung out on meth uh, till I had a paranoid delusion. Um, I, I was up for like 31 days, hadn't slept. And uh, I was at a friend's house and I thought the cops were raiding the house. I saw them raiding the house. They called me by name, told me to come outside with my hands on the top of my head. When I did, two cops ran up and slammed me on the ground. When I hit the ground and looked up, there was no cops anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I immediately went inside, packed a backpack full of clean socks and underwear, stuck a bag of weed in the bottom, wrote a note, taped it to the TV, said, because I was living with the woman, everybody called her Aunt Carolyn. I was like, Aunt Carolyn, gotta go. Love you immediately walked to I-15 and started hitchhiking north. And uh, I started to pass out. Like my body started to shut down. My body started to realize, catch up. Like, oh, hey, you've been up for a fucking month. Like you need to sleep. I made it to a cardboard dumpster outside this and PM on the outskirts of North Las Vegas, right by the welcome to Las Vegas sign. And I crawled into the cardboard dumpster and slept for three days. And when I finally woke up and went inside and asked dudes if I could use the bathroom, they were like, hey, man, we kept coming and checking on you, making sure you weren't dead. <laughs> huh. And uh, I hitchhiked, uh, ended up hitchhiking north, made it to Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City, I run into these kids.
1: Uh, this is Salt Lake City in Jersey or are you talking about Utah? Now,
0: Utah, yeah. Okay. I, did, I hitchhiked north from Las Vegas to, uh, gotcha.
1: Gotcha.
0: to Salt Lake City, Utah. And when I got there, I ran into these kids. They're talking and we're talking. And uh, they're punk rock deadheads. And I'm like, man, do you guys know such and such? And they're like, yeah, man, I'm going to meet him right now. And uh, it was my buddy Sprocket, who was the guy that gave me the 1-900-run dead card that I went on tour with, that I had lost touch with because I went to Vegas and got strung out. I've seen him one time since then. And that was at the Dead Shows in May 1993 in Vegas. They came and found me on the strip, took me to the shows, and had a good time, and then went on their way, and I stayed to do more meth.
1: Um, <laughs> what was the first age? I might have missed it. What was the first age you ever tried anything? Six years old. All right. Wow. I smoked pot and drank beer
0: for the first time at six.
1: Who gave it to you?
0: My older brother, Billy. All right. How, yeah. did you like it at first yeah i did uh i love i mean i didn't really here's the thing i never liked drinking ever never liked it like it's not something that like like if i ever looked at it in my head it was like oh man i'm really enjoying this like i liked the social aspect of it like going to shows and having a few drinks that that kind of thing you know what i mean but like yeah Drinking just for the sake of drinking, like, I have never in my life had a beer because I'm thirsty. Never. Not once. Like, uh-huh. I would literally rather go thirsty than just drink a beer by itself. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I, hate, I hated alcohol. And, uh, but I still drank. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm probably just as much of an alcoholic as I am an addict, or at least I was when I was in high school. I drank, I drank like a fish. Uh, We ended up, we hung out in Salt Lake because their their bus broke down. And they're waiting for this mechanic to see if he could fix it. And uh, after about a month, five, six weeks, he finally said, no, there's nothing I could do. And it was parked in the old Greyhound parking lot. And finally, I guess they had talked to the mechanic and was like told the mechanic, like, hey, you need to let us know as soon as this bus can be moved. So the mechanic contacted them. Like, we came back one night. There was a notice on the bus that said, you have, like, three days to vacate the president's premises and the bus is going to be towed. So Sprocket was like, fuck it, man. He's like, we go hang out at my girlfriend's house, in Denver, Colorado. And, uh, I was like, yeah, sure. Let's go. So, uh, Sprocket, I think this, I think his name was Matt. Other kid that came with us. We hitchhiked across Wyoming and then down to Denver, Colorado, uh, got to Denver on Christmas Eve, 1993. Um, and his girlfriend's mom was like, you're fucking crazy. <laughs> there ain't no way these things are staying in our house. So, uh, we ended up going to this, uh, teen homeless shelter and, uh, I don't know, man, I didn't really mess around with anything hardcore. Uh, I stayed with the hippie drugs. I, ate a lot of, I, got, I really got into acid on dead tour. Um, so like 94, I 93, 94, I had a lot of acid, uh, smoked a lot of pot kind of like ecstasy and stuff like that but i, I stayed away from the hard stuff until december of 94 i was in oakland for the grateful dead shows and uh somebody blew a quarter gram of raw quarter raw crystal lsd in my face so that's a gram of lsd is enough to make 100 sheets which is uh ten thousand hits right so a quarter gram is the equivalent of 2500 hits um
1: somebody blew by it blowing in, it in someone's face it can get them intoxicated oh my god bro <laughs> lsd absorbs in skin okay
0: so it got in my eyes it got in my skin it got in my mouth like it got in my hair like i within seconds i was peaking i was like like higher than i'd ever been in my life and uh this went on for days man i mean days like days like where like i was going like, like i would pass out because my body would just be exhausted and I'd wake up just as high as I went to sleep. And uh finally one of my friends, uh, whose nickname was uh junkie Donnie, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> my nickname uh on tour was Shades. And uh so he was like, Hey Shades, he was like, Man, he's like, I know that you don't really want to hear this. He's like, but I wanna bring you down, and I was like, really? And he's like, Yeah, I was like, well, let's go. And uh we went and got some and the first time I got high, after years of not getting high, I fell out of a second-story window. No shit. I, I was so high, I nodded right out the window. And I fucking hit an awning. And then hit the ground. And, like, everybody up in the apartment is, like, looking out the window. They're like, dude, are you all right? I'm like, I think so. Like, I, I think I'm dude, all right. The awning broke your fall. Yeah. Totally bounced and launched me to the edge of the sidewalk. I I wish it was a cell phone error because somebody probably would have got it. But uh, and I went I was off to the races um from December of ninety four until September of ninety-six. Uh I probably went no more than a total of two or three days ever without. Um around February, March of 95, I started selling for uh I'm not going to get too much detail, but um, a gang that worked for the Mexican mafia that uh, worked for the cartel um, in Boulder. I was selling about three quarter pounds of heroin and three quarter pounds of cocaine every three days. Uh, wow! I had the University of Colorado strung the fuck out, uh, and um, CU Boulder was strung out. I had all those dudes, all the kids strung out on cocaine, but yeah, it wasn't me though. Like I had people who sold for me nobody knew it was mine. I was just some other homeless junkie that everybody thought. Like I used to go buy people, buy, I used to go buy heroin for the people who sold it from me just yeah. to keep up. The- and, uh, I ended up getting busted in, uh, 96, September of 96, I weighed 143 pounds. Um, I was doing about three and a half to five grams of heroin a day. I was doing about a half ounce of cocaine a day intravenously. Um, I ate, uh, 100 milligrams of volume, 10 10 milligram volumes every morning just to get out of bed uh and i got busted and i had 27 federal indictments including the RICO act for trafficking controlled substances schedule 1 schedule 2 controlled substances across state multiple state lines uh turns out they had a tracker on my car and they had all the payphones around my house bugged and uh, or taps not bugged but taps and uh they were listening to all my phone calls. They were they saw everywhere I went. And then I drove to, this is before DIA, Denver International Airport. There used to be an airport out here called Stapleton. They followed me to Stapleton, watched me get on a plane to California. I used to fly out to California, pick up the heroin and bring it back. Hmm. Uh, yeah, dude, it was bad. And I beat that on a technicality. The house that I owned, um, when I bought it, I put it in an ex-girlfriend's grandma name who was suffering from dementia in the state hospital in pueblo colorado so when they served the warrant they served the warrant on the home residence or dwelling owned by me and i didn't own it so i beat it on a technicality everybody got free except for me they said when they busted me they found a tenth of a gram of heroin in my pocket which was, I know it was insane because I literally did half brand shots. There was like no way I had that little tiny piece of heroin in my pocket. But uh, over the, that was September of 96, from September of 96, or actually I I got out after a month and I was out for a couple months. And then I got busted again in November of 96 for sales. Um, I sold to a friend of mine who volunteered to wear a wire because he, I was so strung out and like, I wasn't just like, I couldn't sell enough drugs to support my habit. Um, so I was, after being at Golder for a couple of years and being a known Grateful Deadhead and having good LSD to sell, I had a lot of high ticket clientele. And I just started ripping them all off. I just started selling a bunk acid. I was jacking everybody. Um, I was jacking anywhere from 1500 to $10,000 a day. I had people flying in from around the country to buy my fake acid. And uh, so my friend, he went to the police and he said, hey, I got a $20 bill that you can take a photocopy of and I'll go buy a a 20 off of Shades. He's like, because I'm afraid that somebody's going to kill him. And uh, I got busted in November. I ended up going to prison for the first time from November of 96 until... November of 2005 I was free for a total of about eight months um so over 10 what months, years
1: again what years
0: uh November 96 to November 2005
1: so, so you ten- were only free for eight months out of those years yep wow I was and if I was
0: free I was homeless I was homeless and I was strung out or I was living in some weekly pay by the week motel that parole put me up in um and I, I'd go to prison, get healthy, get out, get strung out, go back, get healthy, get out, get strung out. Um, in 2001, on one of those brief periods out, I shared a needle with a homeless punk rock chick in Denver, and I contracted HIV. So I'm a 21-year survivor of HIV as well. Um, but uh, November of 2005, I got out. And within two weeks, I was strung out. I was living nine blocks away from the parole office on an ankle monitor. I couldn't go more than 100 yards from my house during certain hours. But my front door where my ankle monitor box was at was exactly 98 yards from the front door of the liquor store across the street. So I would walk out every and I lived with a bunch of teenagers, none of them who were old enough to buy alcohol and barely any of them were old enough to buy cigarettes at the time when you had to be 18. But I was partying with these teenagers every night on parole, on an ankle monitor and then on my 32nd birthday I woke up in a house full of kids, empty beer bottles, bongs, empty bags, cocaine on the table, fucking needles laying around and I realized if I didn't stop, I was going to die. So I went to my parole officer and he got me into a program. Um, and while I was sitting at detox, waiting for my bed in the program, um, what did
1: you, what did you tell your parole officer?
0: Uh, well, so here's how, here's how good I was. Okay. So I got out and I started doing dope. And when I, when I do heroin, I'm a drug induced bulimic. I puke a lot. Um, so when I get strung out, I lose weight fast. So I decided that I was going to pretend that I had cancer and uh, that uh, it was going to be cancer of the stomach. And that's why I couldn't hold stuff down. And back then, the place where I did UAs, uh, well, they just sold these drinks. And if you drank this drink and then drank like two liters of water and peed one time before you went and did your UA it would come back clean and it would have all the nutrients and everything that they looked for, the enzymes and stuff that they look for in the pee to make sure it's not fake, right?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So I was doing that. So I was passing all my UAs and I had all these doctor's notes that I was fucking making on the computer at the library. And uh, so when I went to my parole officer, I said, hey, man, I've been lying to you for two months. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I said, I'm strung out. He starts laughing. He pulls out all of my UAs. He's like, you haven't had a hot UA? I said, come on, man. I said, I've been in the system since 1989. I said, I I know how to beat a UA. And uh, he's like, are you serious? And I pulled up my hoodie sleeve and I showed him my tracks. And he was like, oh, my God. He was like, oh, my God. He was like, what am I supposed to do? I was like, well, I want to get a program. He's like, oh. He's like, good, good. So he had me go across the street to the halfway house, there's a halfway house right across the street from the parole office and do a UA right then, they did the, the quick test, they did the stick mm-hmm. test, back hot for THC, methamphetamines because I was doing ecstasy at the time uh, hair, opiates and cocaine and he was like, alright, I need you to go back to your house and not leave your house until I can find you a bed
1: and I was like, alright,
0: cool, and he's like I understand, you, you have to get well, he's like but let your girlfriend go, don't you go You just go stay home. I said, okay. That night, two other parole officers who were the ones who do the random house checks in the middle of the night decided to come check my house. And I'm fucking sitting in my bedroom. My girlfriend at the time and I are having a fight. And everybody who came to our house knew not to ring the doorbell because it rang right over my bed. Uh And I had gone to Denver and not gotten any dough for her. I told her, I said, fuck you. You got this dude who wants to fuck you, who deliver, call him. So I'm just about to do my shot. Got it all fixed up and the doorbell rings. So I do my shot real quick, put the cap on, throw it in the sharps container, throw the sharps container under the table. I mean, under my bed. And then I walk to the front door. And our front door has had one of those uh, little doors that you can open up to see who's out there. Okay. I like open up the little door and I'm like, man, don't ring up. And it's two parole officers. There's two badges right there. And they're like, do not close that door. Unlock the door. Take two steps back. So I'm like, fuck. So I do it. They open the door. They come in. They're like, who else is in the house? I was like, my girlfriend's in the bathroom plucking her eyebrows. So they go get her. Fucking make us sit in chairs. And dude, first they try to go into my roommate's room, but she's smart. She's got a lock and a deadbolt. She sells weed and all her shits in there. And, uh, they're like, we need access to this room. I said, no, you don't. It's my, it's the homeowner's. My room is the one in the back. So they go in the back, and he comes back with this grocery bag, and it's got a fucking dirty spoon, a couple dirty needles, a uh, couple dirty wrappers. Opens up the fucking fridge. There's bottles of liquor, cans of beer, and uh. So I was like, you need to call, uh, Officer Stern. And they're like, why? I was like, because he understands. I was like, I just told him all of this today they're like you're going to jail and the one dude's being a dick and the other one so the other one calls my parole officer my parole officer shows up and he was like stop blah blah blah. he takes the bag of stuff and he was like mr toll came to me today get complete admission he's like i told him to come home stay home not to leave the house blah 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 he, he ran the whole thing down called the supervisor the supervisor tells him he comes back and he's like it's seven o'clock right now he was like, you have till 9 p.m. to get to the detox at Boulder. He's like, if you're not there, I'm coming to pick you up with a squad car. I was like, bet. It's like a half, 45-minute bus ride away. I just went, packed a bag, boom, going. Here's the thing, though. They never opened up my backpack. <laughs> my backpack had a bunch of bags of weed in it. some more dope because I fucking was selling weed to support my habit. So I was like, in my mind, I was like, okay, I just need to get off parole. I just need to get off parole. Well, an amazing thing happened when I was in the detox. I met a bunch of sober people. They used to have, uh, there was the Friday night young people's meeting that was actually in the detox. And then there was a couple other meetings that were in the rooms upstairs above the detox. And before I even went to treatment, I had this really solid, I went to treatment um, already on my four-step. And I I did my first four-step in a two-week treatment program and uh, stayed sober for five years. Uh, it was all about AA and twelve step recovery, um, but something was wrong. Like I was, I was living a lie. Like they, they say in twelve step recovery that uh, work with the people who have what you want, right? So I didn't know what I wanted because, like, in, in like I never had a life to get back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you hear in recovery, like, oh, I'm so glad I got my life back, and you know what I mean? Like I never really had that. I never had an emotional identity, a uh a um a spiritual identity. I never had any of that. And uh so I I was trying to pretend to be like everybody else. Yeah and I ended up uh starting my own business and meeting this woman and getting married for totally the wrong reasons. We got married to combine our taxes. Um, we ended up buying a house together and she cheated on me. We got divorced and I ended up relapsing after six years because I and i say I was sober for five years because the last year I was in a relapse without using like I was addictive behavior. She wants like she cheated on me, and once she cheated on me, that was like license for me to fuck everybody. Yeah, and, um,
1: prelapse is a, good, is, a, is a bad thing,
0: yes, prelapse. I've never heard that before. That's exactly what it was, yeah. And, I ended up relapsing like uh a week or two before my six year anniversary. And uh it was it wasn't too bad. It was I mean it was bad. Don't get it was bad. Uh what I meant by too bad though was I wasn't committing any crimes or anything because I had a bunch of savings. So I was just I told myself, oh I'm just gonna relapse for a couple of weeks and then go back to the rooms. <laughs> I just need to get my head straight. Well, it turned into a year and a half and uh about two weeks before the start of my last relapse, I smoked DMT for the first time. And I had always been afraid of DMT because people are like, man, DMT changes you. It reveals yourself to you. Right? Yeah. So I was always, I was like, oh, dude, I don't want to smoke that shit. <laughs> like, I don't want, you know what I mean? I'm totally okay, like, with who I am. I don't need to go any deeper. And well, that change? Um, you know, after getting, doing all that, because like, Honestly, man, like when I was in prison for all those years, I actually worked on myself. I I read like tons of spiritual and religious self-help books, educated myself, did a bunch of correspondence courses, uh, became a minister. Like, you know what I mean? Like I saw it as my time to like, okay, I'm here for punishment. So I should better myself. I shouldn't be one of those dudes here learning how to be a better
1: criminal. I should be learning how to be a better human being. And uh,
0: so I... smoked DMT for the first time, and it changed something. I relapsed a couple weeks later for the last time, and for the first time in 27 years, when I did heroin, it didn't work. I like
1: got high, don't get me wrong,
0: but it did not shut up the voices in my head. So now um, this piece of shit in my mind, in, in my mind, I'm this piece of shit who doesn't even have the escape anymore. Like, heroin was the one thing who never betrayed me. I call heroin a She um, and she was the one thing, person, anything who had never betrayed me my entire life. Every time I did that drug, it had the effect I wanted it to have till now. So over the next couple weeks, I, or the next couple of months, I became incredibly miserable. I saw myself in this cycle because when I ran out of money, I pawned some stuff. And it was some stuff that I had bought online a few years earlier. Well, it turns out this bicycle was stolen. And they said with my criminal record that I had no knowledge. There's no way I could have had their knowledge that it wasn't stolen. So they gave me nine years probation. Oh, and uh, yeah, and uh, I made it about six months. And um, I started to really, for the first time in my life, consider putting an end to my life. And uh, I made the decision about two weeks before the event. I was just waiting for the right. I had decided that I was going to go to this one friend of mine's house who was also one of my dealers. Um, but I had known him since the mid-90s. Like, we were, we were old friends. We just both happened to do heroin. Um, and if it was snowy and cold out, he would let me crash for a night or two. And he'd let me take a shower or a bath. Um, he's, he, he, he I, I think he wanted to have sex with me, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, he's never forward or nothing. So it snowed this night in October, It's October 27th and, uh, 2013, I was 39 years old and, uh, I went over to his house and I bought some dope and I said, Hey, I said, I, I just got, a, I just hit a lick. I said, I want to buy a couple grams so that I can make some money so make some money he said all right because at that point i was only doing like a quarter gram every three or four days like i was barely doing enough to get high and uh we watched the movie and there was another couple um who were friends of ours who were spending the night and uh we watched the movie and then we we're getting ready to watch the sequel and i was like hey it's like is there any if i go upstairs and take a bath and they're like yeah man no worries you know I went upstairs, I ran a bath with some candles, uh, put on the velvet underground and, uh, fixed up two grams of heroin and two needles, laid in the bathtub, shot them both. And don't remember anything after that. I remember fading out to the sound of Lou Breed and the song heroin by the velvet underground. Uh Next thing I remember was, uh, laying on the bathroom floor in a puddle of water with two dudes over top of me and a chick, um, she had come upstairs and needed to use the bathroom. So she picked a lock and sat down on the toilet and was talking to me. And when she asked me enough questions and I hadn't responded, she pulled the curtain back and saw that I was blue.
1: Oh, and wow.
0: Pulled me out of the tub. But the two guys pulled me out of the tub we We're doing CPR and she ran downstairs and fixed up a $20 shot of meth came upstairs and injected me and they gave me CPR until the meth made it through my system enough to wake me up.
1: And, uh, The next day,
0: this is about uh, 1130 at night, uh, October 27th. And uh, the next day, after laying there, feeling like a complete fucking failure, like I'd never felt in my life, something had changed. I knew I never wanted to do heroin again. Um, And
1: I knew that
0: AA 12-step recovery wasn't the way for me this time. I knew I had to do something different. Um,
1: I needed something more.
0: Like, um, I, feel, I feel like, I, I know now that I, I like I've evolved outside of 12-step. Um, there's a, uh, there's a book called Beyond the 12 Steps. You should check out. It's really good. It's written by a woman who was in her 80s who wrote it like, yeah. three, sober for like 40 years. And like at the end of her 40 years of sobriety, she finally figured it out. <laughs> I wrote a book about it. It's really good. Uh, but, um, so I went and I turned myself in because I was on the run from probation. And I told my parole officer, I said, Hey, is there any way I could go to detox first? Cause I swore I'd never go to be dope sick in jail again. And she was like, yeah, no problem. Um, I went to detox and then I went to jail. Um, I got into a therapeutic community, which is like a rehab inside of jail. Um, with a bunch of older men, older than me, a bunch of hard ass convicts that I respected. And, uh, you get given time in our men's group, there'd be anywhere from seven to a dozen of us sitting around crying. Like these men in this jail classrooms taught me how to cry. And they taught me that it's okay for a man to cry. Um, they taught me that it's okay to be vulnerable. That leading with your vulnerability and leading with your weakness is actually a technique in boxing. You lead with your weakness so that you can follow with your strength. And they uh they helped me to understand that it's my how I tell my story to myself first and foremost is how I present myself to the world. So for years, for almost 30 years, I saw myself as a victim who life was happening to. And during this year in this jail with these, with this group of men, I learned that I'm not a victim of anything that I was a victim to the abuse during that time, but there's nothing about the events that happened in my past that can ever hurt me again, unless I allow them to. So what I did was I sat with my trauma and I sat with my demons because I had been so afraid to look at my trauma and to face and grieve for my childhood that I use the analogy when I uh, when I work with uh, guys and stuff that my trauma was like the monster in the closet. The longer I sat in bed and the longer I sat with my addiction and avoided the trauma, the bigger and meaner that shadowy monster in the closet got. And what happens? Eventually, the kid will get up, turn on the light, or he'll call his parents and turn the light on, and you realize that it's not a monster at all. It's just a coat hanging on a hook. Well, when I was finally brave enough to sit with my trauma and to sit with my demons and cast the light on them, I saw it for what it was—an unfortunate was series of events that happened to a child who had no control over the situation and had absolutely no responsibility in it. And once I was must able to,
1: that must have taken a lot of strength to do that. I, I,
0: I'll be honest, man. If I wasn't in jail, I don't think I got it done. I probably would have got high. I don't think that I would have been able to do that not outside of jail. Um, it was hard. There was weeks at a time where I didn't get out of bed except to go to mandatory classes where I would just lay in bed and cry. And even when I was in group, I would cry <laughs> silently. But And then I came to a place where I was able to forgive my stepmom, able to forgive my dad, able to forgive myself, able to forgive my rapists, all my abusers. And I learned what forgiveness is. Forgiveness isn't saying, oh, you're good. Whatever you did was okay. I, you know, it's all good now. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying, hey, I'm no longer going to fucking lose sleep over the shit that you did to me. Like I'm taking my power back. I'm taking control of my life back. And I'm now completely indifferent to you. What you did was fucked up, but that's between you and God. It's got nothing to do with me anymore. That's what forgiveness is to me. And since I was able to find that forgiveness, I ended up going to the halfway house. Uh, I was supposed to go to prison. I had so I had nine years probation or five years, that's what it was. Five years probation with a mandatory nine year suspended prison sentence if I fucked probation. And I did. So I was sitting in county that whole time thinking that I was going back to prison. Well, turns out that two DAs and two counties and my two lawyers and two in two counties were working behind the scenes to get me into a halfway house instead of prison and uh out here they call it direct sentence you get directly sentenced to the halfway house it's like uh there's probation halfway house prison It's basically how it works it's like a glorified work release and oh, yeah. uh they uh i did great man i was there for six months i fuck it, flew through the program made it to non-residential where i had my own apartment a cop i was on my way to pay my restitution payment for the month And I jaywalked and a cop gave me a ticket for jaywalking. And I told him, I said, bro, I said, if you give me this ticket, I was like, I'm going to prison. And the cop was like, well, shouldn't have jaywalked. (laughs) And I ended up because a ticket is a new case. I called a new case while I was in the halfway house. That's automatic grounds for termination. So I spent the next three and a half years in prison. Um, So the first four and a half years of my recovery was spent in prison uh, or a jail or halfway house or somewhere. And uh, it was amazing. It was uh, when I, I got to one prison and uh, it was cool. And then I went to a lower security one and I got a fight that wasn't my fault. It was some dude trying to make a name for himself. And the person that he was trying to oppress didn't like me. So he he fucking swung on me on the prison yard, like literally 10 feet away from a cop so they were like they're like well they're like you didn't do nothing wrong but we're gonna move you to another prison and they ended up sending me to this prison that's a medical facility and um i ended up becoming and it's called an oca an offender care oca offender Care, aide. and uh you're basically like uh um a nurse a cnn a, a, CN, a certified nurse cna and uh I was working with these guys who had life sentences, who were had dementia, had no idea who they were, would throw shit at you, try to bite you when you were shaving their face. Uh, And then this one client I had, uh, he was a repeat, repeat repeat offender pedophile who, when they caught him the last time, he had kidnapped and murdered a six-year-old boy. And when they found they finally caught him he had the little boy's penis in his wallet like that's how much of a piece of shit this guy was and in prison you don't get to pick who your clients are you don't get to say oh I don't want to work with this guy I don't want to work with this guy you do that you're going to the hole you're going to lose your job you're going to lose all your privileges you're just going to make life hard for yourself so I decided that I was going to show these men compassion and love no matter what they had done because what they had done was between them and God. It wasn't for me to judge. Like the dude was so like, he was like, he was so fat and had diabetes so bad that he was my client. They, I watched him cut off each one of his toes, his foot, his shin, and then his whole left leg. You know what I mean? I had to put him on a, on a, on a lift to get him out of his bed into his wheelchair to get into the chow hall. Like, but what it did is it taught me humility it taught me that no one is better than anyone else. I saw this meme the other day. It said, one dude was like, man, if you had, if you had one day left to live, what would you do? And the one person was like, he was like, well, like I used to say I'd go get high and get crazy and parties. Like, and then I thought about it. He's like, Jesus knew. And he washed feet. You know what I'm saying? And like, that's, that's the kind of humility I want to keep in my life today. You know? Uh, I work with newcomers. I'm a life coach now. I, uh, I am a certified trauma debriefer. I host a podcast, uh, a weekly podcast called No Love. The memoir continues with Rex and Raina. Uh, Raina's my wife. Um, I just started last month going into high schools, doing drug and alcohol awareness and prevention. Um, I, yeah. I'm a energy healer, Reiki and Ho'oponopono master, uh, and I just bought 20 acres down in Southern Colorado. That starting this summer, we're going to turn into a homestead. So my life is great today, man. I have no complaints. All of my problems are luxury, first world problems. Uh, I bitch about the price of gas today. That's what I. That's that's my complaint. You know. Uh, now I just try to have a message of positivity, you know what I mean? And enlightenment and hope, you know, and, uh, like you and I talked about, you know, like recovery comes in many forms, in many ways. I have a lot of friends who, if it wasn't for methadone or Suboxone, wouldn't have the wonderful life that they have today. You know, um, I'm a, I'm a medicinal plant advocate myself, like you said, uh, I'm all for marijuana, uh, other kind of psychedelics, but uh, I don't push that on nobody, you know what I mean? Everybody does their own thing. Uh, everybody has their right to do their own thing. I just I just want people to understand that they don't have to live that life anymore. You know what I mean? Like, You know what I
1: mean? You don't live that life anymore. Yeah. You want- No. Hell no. It's, uh, it was just... And another thing is, I've, I've said this before, Addiction is a lonely place to be. Oh yeah, that's why they say the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. It's us right here. You
0: know what I mean? Like we're we're connected. You know what I mean? Like you and I are helping each other stay sober by spreading our
1: story to the world. Exactly. And like you know, like uh,
0: I totally understand
1: the tenets of
0: anonymity. Don't get me wrong. Um, I, I I was all like, I I. When I was in AA for five years, I was about it. I held district regional positions. I had a service sponsor at all times. I, you know, did the steps, concepts and traditions. I was all about it because I wanted to know it. Like I knew heroin,
1: Yeah,
0: you know, like I want, if I gave my life to heroin. So I was all about it. Well, now I'm giving my life to recovery. I want to be all about it. And, but I also did a lot of research on the old timers, you know, and Bill Wilson never saw Alcoholics Anonymous as a destination. He saw it as a starting point for life. Like not saying that like people should stop going to meetings, but like somewhere along the way,
1: it became about you got to do this or you're going to die. It's this way
0: or no way. And the whole anonymity thing, I get it because back when Alcoholics Anonymous started, it was prohibition. You know what I mean? They weren't supposed to be drinking anyway. Like it was totally illegal to be drinking. So they had to keep it anonymous. But like today with the internet and with the ability to podcast and like TikTok, I've been on TikTok for like two weeks, man. And I'm there's a huge, huge recovery community on TikTok and Instagram. Uh, I don't know, man. Like I'm, I'm all about recovering out loud today. You know, I didn't give a fuck who saw me high. I didn't care. I, didn't, I wore wife beaters this summer with blood running down my arms because I just done a shot. I didn't care. You know what I mean? So why would I want to hide what recovery's doing for me? I didn't hide what heroin did to me. Why would I want to hide what recovery's doing for me? You know what I'm
1: saying? Yeah, exactly.
0: So I, I, I appreciate you, man. I, I, I love having the opportunity to tell my story. Uh I hope, you know, I, I try not to leave out any of the really horrible stuff because there might be somebody else out there sitting on something even more horrible. Like, oh, I can't ever talk about that. And they hear me talk about getting fucked in the ass at 13 years old. Or, yeah. You know, I, I you know, I, I joke with, I joke with <laughs> some of my buddies. I'm like, I could get a better head by nine years old than most women. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's, you know, I can joke about it today.
1: You put some you know? levity to the situation.
0: Exactly, you know, like I'm hoping that like my candidness and my vulnerability will allow somebody else to be vulnerable, and I'll yeah. allow somebody else,
1: and I'm like, hey, me too, you know. Yeah. So, last thing is actually, I have two last things. All right. What is some advice you would have for people listening or watching?
0: I guess if you're new. Like I, I try to get messages to newcomers. Uh, you know, if you're new, um, there's five things that I did those first five years that kept me sober and uh, they never changed. And, and I do them today. I don't, I don't do it to the extent that I did then, but that's, you know, go to meetings, get a sponsor, get a book, whatever your book it is, whatever program you are and read it with your sponsor, get a service position and pray. And like pray doesn't mean you have to get down on your knees and oh our father, it doesn't mean that. It means being open to a dialogue with something positive because I know that heroin was my god for 27 years. I was a devout worshiper, I was at the altar every single opportunity I had, Hmm. or I was giving my time for the time that I had spent. And so for myself. I would advise: don't let the word "God" in the rooms get you caught up. God can mean anything. It can mean group of drunks, group of drug addicts. Great outdoors, great outdoors, good orderly direction. You know, it it it, it doesn't have to be some old dude with a white beard sitting on a throne of the sky casting judgment on you. Yeah. You just have something positive in your life that you can put your attention and your focus onto other than the drugs
1: yeah that would that would be my piece of advice awesome and the second last thing tell us a little bit more about your podcast real quick
0: yeah um it's called no love uh k-n-o-w love um and uh it's 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 um a continuation of my book i wrote a book it's called no love a memoir um basically the story i just told you uh I tried to write it like an AA meeting. What, what what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And uh, after writing it and promoting it on social media and going on podcasts and stuff, some people encouraged me that maybe I should do a podcast. Uh, so I did, and I just named it after the book. Uh, we talk about subjects that are raised, you know, and what I just talked about: uh, sexual trauma, uh, childhood neglect, recovery, addiction, trauma healing. Uh, we don't really have a format. Um, it's kind of like you and I just did. Me and my wife. Um, it's called No Love. The memoir continues with Rex and Raina, um, and we just have guests on. Or sometimes it'll just be her and I. Uh, like our first episode, and then we had another episode. I think it's like episode six, where the first episode we just you know introduced ourselves and told all our story yeah. why we're doing. It. And the other one is uh, she's she, my wife is uh, a member of Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families that recovery program. Good, okay. and, she, and she's kind of new to it, so she was asking me questions on the podcast like a newcomer would ask, you know, somebody with eight and a half years, you know what I mean? Like, kind of yeah. like you said, like, what advice do you have for newcomers? You know, what did you do in early recovery, and how important is a sponsor? You know, but then other than that, we just have guests on. Um, we've had some really good guests. Um, uh, it, it's like this, it runs anywhere, they average from about 40 minutes to I think our longest one was 120. No, not not 120. Sorry, I mean uh, 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 80 80 minutes. I think is the longest one. Yeah, like an hour and tw- an hour and 20 minutes. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, man, it's fun. We just have people on, and uh, you know, I introduce myself. She introduces herself. I introduce them, and kind of like you, I'm like, hey, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, or tell the audience about yourself. And then we just look for a topic in there. You know, when they're done telling their story, we just ask them questions like you did. Very similar format. Yeah.
1: Cool. cool. I yeah, hope we, people check it out.
0: We also uh, we video it and we put it up on YouTube as well. How do they find you there? Uh, no love. The memoir continues on all right, YouTube. Yeah, easy to find. And then um, all the social media on Instagram, it's No Love. The memoir continues. And then on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, it's Rex Shades Eagle.
1: Rex Shades Eagle. Yep. Capital S, capital E. All one word. Shades Eagle all right so i appreciate you coming on the show today appreciate you having me man it's always a it's always a pleasure to be of service yeah thank you so for everyone watching and listening if you like what you heard and saw please click subscribe below so you can see when we add new videos also give us a like check us out on instagram reddit twitter we also have a facebook group where you can go there get some resources as well as going to the events tab, you can see that we do nightly Zoom meetings. Also check out our new website, addicts-anonymous.com. There's plenty of resources there as well as some literature that we have produced. So that's all I have for today. And until next time.